Paul just made a law, which is actually relevant to the sermon by accident, because we are going to be in Romans chapter 7 today. Um, so if you have a Bible handy with you and you would like to read along in, uh, in the passage, it's totally a passage that's worth reading along in. Um, we're going to be going from the beginning of Romans chapter 7 today. Um, so for those of you just tuning in, we as a church have been making our way through the book of Romans. Hasn't it been a soul feast? Hasn't it just been the best thing ever? Um, really, really deeply... Um, enjoying what the Lord has had to say to us and do in us during our time in that book. And yes, we've jumped out of Romans to kind of focus in on other things at certain times of the year. It's been a while since we've been here, but here we are picking it up again, ready to go. And we're going to be sitting here, moving our way through the book of Romans again until we make it to our Christmas series sometime in December. Uh, What's coming up in this letter is some of the most amazingly helpful and beneficial stuff. Romans 7 is great, don't get me wrong, but Romans 8 is just there. Uh, and we're gonna we're gonna start in Romans eight just before Christmas, and so I'm I'm pretty excited about about that. I couldn't be more excited actually. Um, but before we get there, I thought just just really quickly, I actually wanted to do a thing, an unusual thing, um, which was to to issue a correction. You know, like when the newspapers get something wrong, they issue a correction. I wanted to circle back to my own sermon from a couple of weeks ago and just say um, I think I made a mistake that would be worth worth mentioning just by way of correction. Um, our view of preaching here is that we preach the Bible. Uh, not just that we use the Bible to make our points, but that the main point of the text that we preach should be the main point of the sermon that we preach. Um, and that's because we believe that the Bible is God's word and we follow God here, not our leaders. Um, so recently we, we did two sermons. I preached two sermons on the parables of Jesus from, from the Gospel of Matthew, you'll remember. Um, we preached from the parable of the weeds um, and, uh, sorry, the parable of the soils, and then the next week, the parable of the weeds. And when I preached through the parable of the soils, I made the point that many people take the parable uh, and they rush to a secondary application um, in order to preach the sermon. And in doing so, they miss the main point of that parable. Uh, and then the very next week, I did the thing. Um, so uh, in, in, the, in the parable of the weeds, I applied the whole thing to the context of the church. And then afterwards, I was reading the passage again. And Jesus, when he explains it, totally says... The, the, the soil that the wheat and the weeds are growing in isn't the church, it's the world, which t- changes a great deal of things about the sermon. Um, so good news, I didn't preach any heresy. Everything I think I said in that sermon I can find elsewhere in the Bible and preach faithfully. Um, however, I do, I do believe that the main point of my sermon was not the main point of the text, and I just wanted to point that out to you. Um, in fact, I wanted to blame you all for not pointing it out to me sooner and making me find it for myself. Um, so, so, so sorry about that. I just wanted to mention it. It's just as, as a way of a teaching moment for us all, right? That the, the, the truth is that pastors aren't perfect, but God's word is. And so it's really important that we keep our eyes on the Bible. And so you can all be extra vigilant today as we make our way through Romans 7 and tell me how faithful I was to the text. Isn't it good news that we follow Jesus rather than human leaders? Um, and fortunately, uh, we got away with that one without doing too much damage. With all of that said, I, uh, we're going to dig into Romans chapter 7 today which brings us again to a theme that's been running through this book, which is the theme of the law. Um, There's an obvious battle that takes place inside each one of us. This is what we've been hearing uh, when it comes to how it is that we approach God. Do you want God in your life? Do you want him to be your savior and Lord? Do you want to worship him and know him and be known by him? How is it that we are going to make our approach to God? We've got two options. We either approach God by law by obedience to the rules, that my obedience is the basis of my standing with God, that's option one, or we approach him by grace, as people who have received an undeserved gift, 
Those are your two options. There's, there's nothing else possible. Every religion on the planet believes ultimately one of these two things about how you make your approach to God. Uh, approach to God. And as we heard Mike um, accurately point out to us last week, what makes Christianity unique is our view that we approach God by grace and not by deserving through the law. Um, Romans has been encouraging us to come to the end of ourselves, to kind of run out of steam as, uh, of self-sufficiency as far as gaining salvation goes, to, to, to put that away and instead to cry out to Jesus for help that we cannot bring about in our own lives. It's kind of like a surgeon removing gangrene. Um, the Apostle Paul is arguing with our souls, trying to convince us that it is foolish to depend on my goodness as the basis of my standing with God. We want to have God accept us because we deserve it. That's what we want. That's, that's fundamental to our nature. That's, that's the world that we wish to live in. I want a world where God likes me because I'm good. Um, it's really hard to let go of that. That is the rot that we need to be rescued from. That is the thing that's actually going to kill us. Um, and like a surgeon, Paul is cutting and cutting and cutting until every single last vestige of that sinful self-reliance has been removed from us and never to grow again. That's what he's trying to do to us in the book of Romans. Um, he intends to leave no trace behind that can again turn into the rot which had defined our lives before we heard the good news of Christ. So why don't we uh, begin to read our passage for today uh, as we pick up these themes again. Romans 7 verses 1 to 6. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. It's been a while since we've been here, so why don't we summarize really quickly how we got here. Throughout this, this letter to the Romans, thus far we have learned, as Paul kind of builds out the core message of the gospel, we have learned that there is something wrong in this world that the whole of the human race has rebelled against God and not just rebelled against him, that from our natures outwards, we have all become sinful. This sinfulness makes us God's enemies by nature. And as God's enemies, we are doomed to face his eternal judgment unless something can be done. Where is it that we are going to go to escape this dilemma? How is it that we can be reconciled to God? How can we be saved from this penalty that we deserve? There's an obvious option, if we haven't considered it already. We've mentioned it already. Um, that when God brought Israel out of Egypt, back in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, he made a covenant with them. A covenant is a promise that creates a relationship. 
Like marriage vows, you make a promise and it creates a relationship, but that relationship has rules. This is what a covenant is. So in marriage, if you break those rules, you break the relationship. The promise in marriage is, I keep myself only for you until death do us part. And the rules and the relationship are connected. And if I break the rules, I break the relationship, don't I? It's not meant to be. God made a covenant with Israel and entered into a relationship with them. And his covenant was given to them with law. Many came to believe that if they wanted to be saved, if they wanted to escape the problem of their own sinfulness, what they should do is keep the law. But there's a problem. No one, this is what we heard in Romans, no one, not even one, has ever kept those rules. There is not a soul on this planet outside of Jesus Christ himself who has ever lived perfectly according to God's law. The people who know God's law are therefore the people, um, are therefore the same as the people who don't know God's law in the end. They are either condemned by the law or they're condemned by their conscience, but all stay condemned. We all fall short of being the kind of people that the law describes. Um, we all therefore deserve God's judgment as law breakers. We all deserve soul death. This is God's decree. No one has ever been saved by keeping God's rules. Do you know that about yourself today? Do you know that you are, before God's law, a sinner? That you rebel against the God who made you and that you break his rules all the time, every day? I have some good news for you. Because none of this, none of it, is a surprise to God. He knew this about us when he gave the law at Sinai. And saving people was never the reason he gave the law. He's always had another plan, a better one, an older plan than the law. Salvation from sin does not come from keeping the law. Rather, God himself has come into this world as Jesus and has fulfilled the law himself in the life of Jesus and has become our sacrifice as the law described in the crucifixion of Jesus and has risen again, having defeated Satan's sin and death in the physical resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died in our place and for our sins as our law-fulfilling substitute. And so now any and all who place their faith in him, the only one to ever have done this, the only one who ever could do this, anyone who places their faith in him as Savior and Lord, we are saved. We are adopted and received and reconciled to God. Just like how a widow is no longer married to her former husband, as Christians who have placed our faith in the Savior Jesus, we are no longer bound to the law. This is what Paul just told us, isn't it? We were bound to the law, but now we have died to the law through the body of Christ. And so we are instead bound to him like we were bound to the law before we knew him. Salvation doesn't come through keeping the rules. Salvation comes through placing your faith in Jesus and him rescuing you. Sinner, have you gone to this Jesus to be saved by his grace? If you have, you have become a child of God. If you want to belong to God, go to him, not by the road of your obedience to the law, but by the road of faith in the finished work of Jesus. Now, most of that isn't new in Romans. Uh, those of you who sat um, through this series with us, that's super familiar. Hopefully it's super familiar to all of us because that's just Christianity, 
Right? This, is, this is the core message of the Christian faith. Um, but what comes up next in Romans 7 is the stuff that we haven't dealt with yet because we have a dilemma. There's, there's, there's an obvious problem with what I just said to you. It's this. If God wants to save us through Jesus rather than through the law, why bother with the law? Like, why did he bother giving it if it wasn't going to save us? What was the purpose of the law? Did God make a mistake? You feel it? Like, if the law's no good, if the law has saved no one, is the law bad? Is God bad? Now, we don't say these out loud, but these are the obvious questions. Is God contradicting himself between the Old Testament and the New Testament? The Apostle Paul, arguing, filled with the Spirit of God as he writes these things to us, predicts these objections because they're very real and they're very important. And in his answering these objections, he does a thing. He does the surgeon's scalpel thing and he just kicks law-based righteousness to death. If there was any last vestige in us that was still hanging on to the hope that maybe, maybe, maybe God likes me because I'm good, that, that maybe God is going to accept me because of my obedience. If there was any last part of you that despite everything that we've heard for so long was still placing your confidence in your goodness and not Christ's, let the Apostle Paul just put that bad boy down like a dog that barks too much and needs to go. <laughs> Best story, when Mike gets back next week, ask him, uh, his dad put down his dog without telling him. Just one day he went home to see his parents. Where's my dog? Oh, we put it down. Favorite story ever. (laughs) Let's scroll back to verse 5 and we'll read through to verse 14. I told you 15, it's my bad. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? You feel it? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. And so the law is holy And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. Was sin. Producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh. Sold under sin. Did the law fail to redeem people because there was something wrong with the law? No. The law fails to redeem people because there is something wrong with you. Isn't that encouraging? 
Thanks for coming this Sunday. We'll, uh, we'll see you next week. The band wants to come up. What, what, what response song would you lead <laughs> after that, if that was the whole sermon? It's hard, isn't it? The law fails to redeem people because there is something wrong with me. We need to hear this. It's important that God talks to us like this, that we've got to, we've got to take the hard parts of the Bible along with the good parts of the Bible because these hard parts is what makes the good parts make sense. Because there is a fundamental flaw in human nature, which includes me. Because I am fundamentally flawed, I am fundamentally sinful. The message that I have to put down the law as the basis of my standing with God is the hardest thing in the whole world for us to hear. As, as a pastor, I've noticed, um, maybe you've noticed this in your workplaces as well, that there's a constantly revolving door of which part of Christianity is the most offensive. Which part of Christianity is the most offensive? Like, if, if we were to sit there and go, what, what things that the Bible say does the world like the least? And at this present moment, there's a few hot topics that sort of jump to the front of our mind is surely this is the obvious thing that's the most offensive thing in the Bible. Like, it's, 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 it's sexuality and gender at the moment seems to be the, the offensive thing. It's not. It really isn't. The Bible has something harder to say to you than that. The hardest thing that the Bible has to say to a rebellious human soul the thing that something in us just absolutely refuses to believe. And when you see it, it is utterly devastating. Is that <laughs> I am so broken when it comes to standing before God that there is nothing, nothing in me that could ever possibly deserve his kindness. When it comes to the kindness of God, we just need to keep deserving right out of it. Just right out of it. It is all of grace. Grace is offensive at first. You are not self-sufficient. You're not. You need help. <laughs> I need help. Why don't we just walk this through uh, and experience this again? I mean, we're probably not hearing this for the first time, but I would wager we need to hear it again. Why don't we do this this morning? Why don't we, why don't, let's create our own heresy again. I can, I can recant next week. Why don't we try and justify ourselves by the law this morning? See how, let's see how far we get. I will wager that there is something in all of us right now where we are trying to stand on the law rather than on grace. I, I'm, talking to, I'm talking to you believers as well as those of you who are new. There is something in all of us that right this very second is still trying to stand on the law rather than on grace as the basis by which we expect God to like us. As believers, we wrestle with this. Yes, we know ultimately my salvation is by faith or else we're not believers. But in the details of our lives, don't we see it? I sin and I hide my face in shame from God and not approach him, forgetting that I only ever stood before him by grace. I try and justify myself. I try and explain away my problems. I try and punish myself before I think I'm worthy to come back to God. I try and do penance rather than be forgiven and reconciled to repent. Those of us who are not yet believers, this is a common last hurdle to faith. We either believe, we either believe in our heart of hearts, 
not, not so much our head, I don't think, but in, in our heart of hearts, we, we seem to think <laughs> either that God really does accept me because I'm good or that I could never come to God because I'm not good. I think we can understand those two things pretty well. God will accept me because I'm good and God can't accept me because I'm not good. And those two ideas, I deserve it and I don't deserve it, and couldn't, couldn't ever approach. They sound like opposite ideas, but they both come from the law. Both come from the same desire to, to walk into God's kingdom with my head held high, thinking that I deserve to be there. One is optimistic. I'm making it. Look at me. Aren't I a good boy? And the other is pessimistic. I can't make it, and therefore I can't have God. But both come from the law. Both share the, the root cause. And if you want to be rescued from either of these, what we need to do is to put down the law and to come to Jesus. So let's walk it through. God gives his command, his law. It describes a moral life. It describes a worshipful life that honors the Lord perfectly. Um, and it does things like, like telling me what things are good. It also does things like telling me what things are bad and that I should avoid. Let's pick one of those. Shall we go to the Ten Commandments, for example, and pick the one that Paul has just used as an illustration? Just one of the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, we read, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Though, if we're going to be legalists, your neighbor's neighbor's stuff, fair game. What is it to covet? It's like a blanket thing, isn't it, that you put on the bed in the winter? <laughs> to covet is to sinfully desire something, specifically something which belongs to someone else. It's not just the dissatisfaction with what I have, it's the dissatisfaction with what I have in comparison with what somebody else has. It's jealousy mixed with envy, mixed with resentment. Coveting. It's the comparison game given a word. And God and his law, given at Sinai, has told us, you want to you honor me? You want to be perfect? You want to be good like I am good? Don't covet. God doesn't look at your life with jealousy. Actually, it's pretty easy for him to do if you think about it. But he tells us not to be like this. Think of Jesus living on this earth, the, the perfect law keeper. What did he have in terms of material wealth and family possessions. A homeless man without a wife. Was he jealous of the people living in the mansions in his day? One of them had a really big rock wall that they could do paintings on slowly to replace TV. Somebody had a just, just a kraken camel, you know, spree wells on its ankles. This, this. Was Jesus jealous? Did Jesus covet? No. No, that's what the perfect man looks like. But in our life, how do we go with coveting? Don't you find yourself asking that question? It's not just, is what I have enough? That's important. But why do they get that and I don't? Why does he or she get to have the thing that I want? 
What is it like for us to try and gain God's favor by obeying just that one law, let alone the rest of them? Do you covet? Romans 7, 5 says, whilst we were living in the flesh, this is, this is the pre-Christian life, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. What, what happens? What happens when we come before God with this law and we think, will God accept me based on my perfect obedience to his rules? Not even all of them, by the way, just one, just one. How do we go standing before God with the command not to covet? Paul tells us our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. What is happening is that without Christ, this is our own sin nature working against us to kill us, to bear fruit for death. As Paul, he calls it sin, our sinful passions. Isn't that a useful phrase? Our sinful passions. Actually, uh, that, that, that word's really good. Um, a previous generation wrongly concluded that emotion was evil. Emotion is welcome in the Christian faith. No, there's, there's an older version of, of the English language where we separated between passions and affections. Both strong emotions. Affections is, is the love a, a husband has for his wife or, or the parents have for their children. Or, or that's, that's affection. That's strong feelings. It's not, it's not stoic, oh, I think those children might turn out okay. It's, it's strong. And it's holy. Nothing, nothing wrong with loving your children passionately, loving your wife or your husband passionately. But the word passion was, was reserved for this use, sinful passions. Strong, sinful desire. Yes, sin arouses in us strong feelings. And here we learn that our sinful passions, this internal inclination towards sinfulness, was aroused by the law. Isn't that isn't it interesting? Aroused by the law. This desire in me was, was, was there, but when I finally encountered God's law... It intensified. It intensified. The law takes my sinful desires and rather than making them go away and bringing me before God pure, the law takes my sinful desires and fans them into flame. How perverse is that? And yet it's real. It's like a cookie in the fridge with a sign on it that says, Matt, don't eat this. Is suddenly the most delicious object in the fridge and nothing else will satisfy. She bakes for the children and not for me. <laughs> it's not true. She bakes for me all the time. That's why everything is getting bigger in the middle section. <laughs> the things that God has put out of bounds in life, aren't they just the most desirable things? We become fascinated with them. Fascinated with them. We mentioned that Christian sexuality is a, is a controversial issue in our day. Isn't this just a case study? That when God takes things and puts them out of bounds, we just go looking for any loophole, any loophole available. We take his good thing and we twist it and we vote it. And the only thing it seems that we can't be satisfied by is the good thing. By faithful, monogamous marriage between a man and a woman until death do we part. It seems to be the, the only thing that people don't want. Because our sinful passions aroused by the law, are producing fruit for death. This is the human condition. 
God has said, do not covet. Do not covet. We all know jealous comparison is a bad thing. We all know it. We all know how people treat each other when they allow this instinct to get out of control. What does our coveting produce in our actions? We, we all know just how many things people are willing to sacrifice in order to gain their idols. What's not a bridge too far? If only I can have this thing. How many standards can we compromise on? And we all know what people will say to God when he doesn't give them what they want. Should we get more personal? You covet. You do. We've got four, four examples of the sorts of things that God tells us in, in, in Exodus not to desire that belong to somebody else. House is the first one. It make you upset when you see that someone else has a nicer house than you? Or for anyone younger than 40, a house? <laughs> Spouse. Oh, I wish that I could, that I had Jesse's girl, right? It's been singing about it forever. Why does he get to be married to her? Why does she get to have a husband and I don't? Status and lifestyle. This is the, the male servant and the female servant. Think about what having a servant does to your life. I no longer have to clean the house, which isn't as good as his house. I can live a life of luxury. I have status. I have position. I have lifestyle. We don't tend to have the servants. We still have the status and lifestyle issue. Money. It's wealth. Someone gets paid more than you at work. How does that go? Your neighbors have, have the spare cash to, to blow on a, on a jet ski. Because that's the definition of success is to have a jet ski in your garage that never gets used. Apparently, even though Exodus is like 4,000 years old, the human heart hasn't changed a great deal. We still covet the exact same things that people have always coveted. Come on, shall we stand before God by our perfect obedience to his command and demand, and demand that he gives us access to his heaven? Do we have the confidence that God is for us and not against us because of our purity? Are we a coveting free people? It doesn't work for us as a church. How often do we joke about how much we hate this building? <laughs> that, that, that church down the street, they've got this nice new flashy thing. It has a car park. Can you imagine if our church had a car park? That'd be great. Are we a coveting free people? We are not. I am not. This law, it doesn't justify me. It condemns me. And what shall we say then? Romans 7, 7. The law is sin? No, by no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. We see the cookie with the sign. And sin seizes the opportunity and produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died 
the very commandment, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. How terrifying is this? If you stop and think about it for just a moment. I think we can all agree that when God said, do not covet, he was describing a good thing. Do we agree with Paul? The law's not sinful. The law's good. We like the law. It's beautiful. The Ten Commandments describe a wonderful life in a beautiful society. We like the Ten Commandments. We like, we like God's law. And it kills us. It kills us. It makes our sin bigger. If, if I was to say to you, all who never covet are welcome to come and stand with God, which one of you can come? Rather than justifying you, the law condemns you. You dirty covetous. It's, it's, it's not just, it's not just that we haven't obeyed the law and therefore can't claim this kind of law-based righteousness. It's not that we haven't done it. It's that we are so far from being able to that the law itself increases our sinfulness. God defines sin for us and we go, great, now we know how to do it with skill. This is the human nature before God's. If obeying this one rule, this one rule was the condition for life. If this was our apple hanging in the tree in the Garden of Eden, we all just died and ate it. You and I, we stand condemned by God's beautiful law. How perverse is it? How hopeless is that? We would be justified by it. And instead it makes us worse. We, we come to a conclusion. So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy, verse 12, and righteous and good. Is it that which is good that then brought death to me? No, by no means. It was sin. Producing death in me through what is good. Through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. That's why it doesn't work. That's why it doesn't work. The law is good. I am not. Most of us, if not all of us, came here this morning knowing that with our heads. But there's always, always, always something in us that wants the truth to be anything other than this. Anything other than this. That wants to finally outgrow our need for grace. The law doesn't save me. The law can only ever have one effect on me, which is to describe and define and increase my sin. Not because the law is bad, because I am. So don't stand on the law as the basis by which you expect God to save you. How futile, how foolish. The law can't save me. Why did, why did God even give the law? To teach me just this, to teach me just this. You need help. The law was given to convict us of our sin and to send us sprinting towards the Savior and away from self-sufficiency. I have a need, but until I encounter God's law, I don't even know my need. 
I think I am good or that maybe I can be. But then now by one small part of God's law, I discover I am utterly without hope. And so because that law does that to me, we read it before, but doesn't our joy increase when we read it again? Thank God for Romans 7, 6 and truths like it. But now we are released from the law. Isn't that good news? We're released from the law. Having died to that which held us captive. If it wasn't in the Bible, wouldn't this be blasphemy? That the law is a slave master? Holding us against our will? Holding us captive? But that's the effect it has. God's beautiful, good, perfect moral law. But we have died to that which held us captive. We have died to the thing that we were bound to in the first covenant. And now we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Still a good idea not to covet. It's not what justifies us. What justifies us is the finished work of Jesus Christ, the righteous, who alone is righteous. So give up on law as the basis of your standing. Stop looking down at your neighbor and thinking, good luck, sinner. And receive the grace that is freely offered. Receive the grace that is freely offered. Freely available to all who would humble themselves before God and receive it. Die to the law through Christ. Get it gone. In principle, yes, but in fact also. Stop expecting God to like you because you're likable. Stop expecting God to accept you because you are good. Stop placing your hope in your performance. Stop getting shattered and defeated and despairing every time you find that your performance is not perfect. Approach God through grace, freely given to all who ask. Let's pray. Lord, last week we did a thing at the end of our service where many of us responded in faith to, to say publicly that we don't love you like you deserve to be loved because we feel like we've been forgiven little. Lord, thank you that you've continued that work in us today. Thank you for increasing our awareness of the size of the debt which has been paid on our behalf through Jesus. Lord, I'm not good. And I really, really, really want people to think I am. And it'd be nice if you could too. Lord, we thank you for this hard word, this, this, this convicting word. Not because it condemns us. No, because unlike the law, it points us towards the Savior and rescues us.
Lord, the Lord doesn't rescue me, it condemns me. So thank you for Jesus. Lord, I stand before you. I look to the Son and I say, I accept. Give me your grace. Lord, there's that part of my life that I've been keeping away from you before today. I've been hiding it from you in shame, thinking that you, you couldn't possibly forgive this thing. You couldn't restore this thing. And the best I can do is to cover it and hide it and hope nobody notices. Lord, there's a part of my life where I, I find myself unable to forgive others, to be merciful towards those who are broken and dirty and underperforming. I sit in judgment on them thinking that I am better. Lord, let me bring those parts of my life to you even now and say, look, Lord, <laughs> I still need rescuing. Rescue me from your law and give me your grace. I need the righteousness that comes through Jesus. I have no reason to ask you for it. No right to demand you give it. But I have a true and certain hope that you are willing because you have said so. Give me the righteousness which comes through faith. Help me to die to the law and to live as one who is bound to another, to a gospel of grace. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.